Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Let's worship God this morning. Yeah. 
Extend out that same welcome that Jake gave. That's what we're here for. We're here to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. And so let's do that. Let's ask the Lord to help us to worship Him and glorify Him today. Let's pray. Lord, this day belongs to You, and this time together belongs to You. And Lord, I pray that you would be worshipped, that you would be worshipped, you would be exalted in all that we do here. <clears throat> Lord, please prepare our hearts to take communion together, to sing to you, Lord, to hear your word preached and be addressed by you. Please, Lord, prepare our hearts. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're about to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, Jesus said, do this, what we're about to do, he said, do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. So we want to do that this morning. We want to do this in remembrance of Christ. Let me mention just a few things from God's Word that I believe can help us to do that. Um, you know, verse that I mentioned last Sunday, you don't have to flip there. <clears throat> In fact, you can go ahead and flip to John 19. But as you flip to John 19, let me mention this to you. A scripture that I mentioned this past Sunday was that if you look in Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration, you got Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and it says that they're, they're speaking about the exodus or the departure that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that's the words that are used, the departure that Jesus was about to accomplish. Think about that. So he was about to go to Jerusalem, and he was going to accomplish something through his death. This means that his death, according to Luke 9.31, is an accomplishment. His death accomplishes something. In other words, he was not just a good man, a really good man that was martyred. Uh, he, he didn't merely live a life that, that is just an example, and we're just supposed to follow the example, although we certainly should. But according to Luke 9.31, his death at the cross actually accomplished something. They were discussing the departure that he was about to accomplish. And so I want us to remember that as we read John 19. Let's start in verse 16. We're going to use, just read a few verses here and remember Christ. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. It's John 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So think about Christ there, crucified, hung, humiliated, bleeding upon that cross with a title over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And what was that death for? And what I'm, what I'm wanting us to remember is that was an accomplishment. It actually, it, he's not just a good man who was martyred, but this accomplished something. If you skip down, I want you to look at verse, let's go down to verse 28. And in verse 28 it says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, think about that. He knew that something, as he hung there on that cross, something was accomplished, something was finished. Knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Luke 9, 31, it said they were going, he was going to the cross to accomplish something. And right here it says Jesus is hanging on that cross and he knows that it's, been, that it's been finished. And so he screams out just before he dies, he screams out, it is finished. Something was accomplished at the cross. Now, the prophet Daniel and Daniel 9 gives us a few phrases that help us to understand what was finished there. What was accomplished at the cross? And these are the phrases that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. He says this, to finish the transgression. So he went to the cross to finish the transgression. And here's another phrase he uses, to put an end to sin. To put an end to sin. What did he accomplish at the cross? Next phrase, he says, to atone for iniquity. He was going there to the cross to do a work, to accomplish something, to finish something, and that was to atone for iniquity. Our wickedness atoned for, covered in Christ Jesus. Our sin paid for, paid in full. It's finished, it's accomplished as Jesus goes to the cross. Sinners can actually be saved. Sinners can actually have eternal life because iniquity has been atoned for. So if you're in Christ, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, I want you to remember this. If you're in Christ, you've got nothing left to do for the salvation of your soul. It's all been finished. It's all been paid in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's, there's no more wrath that God 
has stored up for you. But Christ drank down all of the wrath of God at the cross. He accomplished that. It's finished. No more wrath for you. Nothing but forgiveness purchased by Jesus. I love, I believe a few weeks back, Dustin said he didn't die on the cross and say it has begun. He said it's finished. It's accomplished. It's done. And so what we're about to do is we're about to remember that together. If you're in Christ, as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper together, uh, we're about to have this, the, the bread and cup is going to be distributed out, distributed out to us all. If you're in Christ, brothers and sisters, receive it with joy and faith in Christ. Remember Christ right now. Use His Word. Sit in silent prayer. But remember Christ right now. Receive it with joyful faith. And also a sobriety. And we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you're here and you're not in Christ, you're not converted, you haven't been born again, I want to encourage you to please let the bread and the cup pass you by this morning. Let it pass you by. It wouldn't be appropriate for you to eat this sign of His blood being shed and His body being broken if you haven't actually spiritually partaken of that. And so if you're not in Christ, please let the bread and cup pass you by this morning. But I want to beg you, please, to consider your soul. Consider your eternity. Think about Christ and what He's done. Spend time thinking about your soul. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you that we can come before you right now. And, uh, and Lord, for allowing us to obey these words, this command from you to do this in remembrance of you. And Lord, we do that. Lord, we, we remember Christ. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior. And Lord, we know this truth uh, to be absolutely true, Lord, that it's not that we loved you first. It's not that, Lord. Lord, we know that if we were left to ourselves, we would, we would run from you, Lord. We would rebel against you. And Lord, it's, it's exactly what we did. Every one of us, Lord. But we praise you, God, that it's not that we first loved you, but that you first loved us and you gave yourself, Lord Jesus, for us. And Lord, we want to worship you right now. Worship you for mercy. We want to worship you, Lord, for this love and grace poured out at the cross. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us. Lord, we do this to the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat and drink in response to Christ's words. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body.
And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I want us to take some time now. Colossians 4.2 says this. Grace Community Church, here Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here's this command we have from the Lord's Word to continue steadfastly in prayer. And praise God we get to do that. Because Christ has has died for us, we've got access into the throne of grace and we get to go to Him in prayer. So I want us to spend some time now uh, praying for many things. I want us to worship the Lord together in prayer. We're about to do that. I want us to pray for our Uh, our witness in this world, that we'd be light in the midst of darkness. I want us to pray for our holiness, that we'd be a people set apart, growing in the likeness of Christ. So several things we're going to be praying. One thing specifically I want to mention, just um, in the sense of, uh, I want to make sure you understand why I'm praying, what I'm praying is, I want us together to lift up the pursers, uh, and specifically Javon and Jamonte, these young boys that have been with them for the last three and a half years, and this is going to be their last Sunday with us. And so we want to call out to the Lord uh, for Javon and Jamonte that God would, would do a mighty work in their life. And also praying for the Pursers, too, because I, uh, uh, I know this has been a tough season for them with, with those, those boys leaving. And so let's take some time to pray. Call out to the Lord. Please lean in and pray with me. God, we worship you. Lord, full of grace and mercy and forgiveness, just like we're we're celebrating right now. And also full of power and majesty, God, and, and we tremble at your word. Angels bow down. They obey your every bidding, Lord. You're the Lord of hosts, our mighty God. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us as your people to grow and trust in you more and more. God, help us to rest in your sovereignty, rest in your providence, that you control all things, all all things that seem so unstable in this world, and yet you're in absolute control over it all. You sat enthroned as a king at the flood. And you sit as king forever. God, bless your people with peace and rest in you in the midst of turmoil. God, I pray that our hearts, God, that you would cause us as a church to have hearts that that call out to you with faith, Lord, in your power. That nothing is impossible because of who you are, because of your strength. 
God, I pray that you would help us to know you more and more in all your beautiful attributes, God, in all your glory, and, all, and, and, and help us to know you, Lord, and, and to ascribe to you the glory that's due your name. We worship you, Lord. You're our creator. You're our savior. Lord, you've revealed yourself as the compassionate one that dips down into humanity, that, that brings yourself low, that humbles yourself even just to look on humanity like us. You're a great and mighty God, and you're worthy of praise. And so, God, we worship you. God, help us to worship you in song in just a minute. Help, help us to worship you as we hear your word in just a moment. Let all that we do, Lord, I pray that you would give us that heart that in our eating, in our drinking, in everything that we do, everything, Lord, that we would live to worship, we would live to the glory of Christ. You're worthy, Lord. God, I pray that you would make us faithful witnesses in this world. You described it like light and darkness. You said that if we followed you, you'd make us fishers of men. You said, Lord, that those who win souls are wise. God, I pray that you would help us to do that. Make us faithful witnesses, empowered by your Holy Spirit to make you known in darkness. God, make, make us willing to be persecuted, Lord. Make us willing to be seen as awkward or strange, Lord, but give us, fill our hearts with a boldness, Lord. Such a love for lost sinners, such a, such a longing for people to be saved, God, that we couldn't help but make your gospel known. Lord, please open the door for your word to go forward from each one of our mouths. Lord, we want to obey that truth, Lord, to rescue those who are being taken away to death and hold back those that are stumbling to the slaughter. Help us to obey that, God. Make us rescuers like you. God, I pray that you would forgive us for apathy in that. And that you would get rid of any coldness in our hearts. Any coldness towards lost people being saved. Help us, Lord, please. God, please make us a holy people set apart for, from you. You said, Lord, that as we, as we beheld, as we behold Christ, that we would be conformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, Lord. And I pray that you would do that in us. Help us to see Jesus and become more like him. God, forgive us for our sin, Lord. Please rid us of these root sins of selfishness and pride, unbelief. Kill these sins in us, Lord, please. God, I pray that sexual immorality and idolatry, Lord, that it wouldn't even be named among us. Make us holy, Lord. Set us apart. We're your people, Lord. God, I pray for every brother and sister here that's in trial, that's in the midst of hardship, Lord, help them to feel that reality, to know that reality, to trust your word, that you're a refuge and your strength, you're a very present help in trouble. God, help them to know your presence. 
And Lord, we want to lift specifically, lift up the pursers to you, our brother and sister, Lord, that you would be a help to them. God, be to them the God of all comfort that comforts us in all our tribulation. God, I pray that they would rest on you. They would go to you in prayer, full of hearts full of faith, and they would find rest at the throne of grace. God, I lift up Javion and Jamonte, Lord, these precious boys that you've allowed to be around us. Um, God, I pray for their souls. Lord, you have the power to do as you please in their life, Lord, and bring into their life whoever you want to. And God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in them, that they would understand and know and love your gospel, that they would see their sin for what it is, but they would cling to the cross and be saved, that they would hunger and thirst for you, Lord, that you would use those boys for the, for the glory of your name throughout this world. Protect them, Lord. Protect them from evil. Protect them, Lord, from Satan's schemes. And bring glory to your name through their lives, please. And Lord, I lift up all the, all the children represented here, Lord, in our church. Lord, that these, that these children would know you. That they would look past religion and ceremony, God. They'd look past that and they would see Christ. That they would know you, Lord, and they would love you. And they'd spend their lives, Lord, laying it all down for Christ, Lord. Please do that with every child here. God, I pray right now as you address us through the preaching of your word, and as we sing these songs to you, God, give us a taste of eternity. Give us a taste of heaven, Lord, of worshiping you and hearing directly from your mouth. Lord, we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And before we sing, I want us to just get a sense of where we're going as we worship. That We're, we're going to start by essentially singing Psalm 51, which is that hymn of, that psalm of confession, God be merciful to me. And we'll... We'll sing this together, and as we, as we finish this song, we're going to walk right into Bless the Lord, O my soul, that God has been merciful to us. And then uh, the last song we'll sing is a Revelation song, that, w- that we look forward to the day where we're gathered together with every tribe, nation, and tongue, singing the, the worthiness and the holiness of God. So let's sing God be merciful to me this morning. Be merciful to me On thy grace I rest my plea And just in compassion thou Blot out my transgressions now Wash me, make me pure 
Cleanse, oh cleanse me from my sin My transgressions I confess Grief and guilt Praise the 
to me on thy grace I rest my plea sing bless the Lord bless the Lord oh my soul oh my soul worship his holy name sing like never before oh my soul i'll worship your holy name the sun comes up it's a Like never before. 
be seated. All right, we come now to the in the worship, in our worship of the Lord together to the preaching of the Word of God. And we are in great need of help this morning from the Holy Spirit, just like every other week where we give attention to God's Word. And so I want you to join with me now as we ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word today. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You today, and we come in the name of Jesus, Lord. And we are reminded, even now, that You do not, You will not hear us on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of Your Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, we come... In His name, we pray in His name. We boast in His work, Lord. We hide ourselves in Christ today. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for how faithful You've been to build this church through the preaching of Your Word. And all across this room, Lord, there are many needs, spiritual needs, many burdens, God. Lord, we only know just a, just a fraction of what is needed, but you know it all, Lord. And you give good gifts to your children. And so we want to trust you with this time, Lord. And we ask, God, that you would feed us with our portion today. That you would encourage our hearts. That you would convict us of our sins. That you would send us to Christ. That you would strengthen our faith. Lord, please come now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help your people to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin by reading God's word together. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 3. These are the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour. Or less. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word to us this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. When he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones 
to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. I want you to notice in our study of Matthew's gospel together that as we made a transition from Matthew chapter 2 to these first verses in chapter 3, quite a bit of time has passed in Jesus' life. If you'll remember with me the end of chapter 2, it ended with Jesus fleeing Israel to Egypt as the refugee baby, fleeing the murderous reign of King Herod. And then as that chapter closes, we're told that they're called back into the land of Israel while Jesus is still a child. And this is how chapter 2 ends. Jesus is a child living in the land of Israel. And then chapter 3 begins and Jesus is being revealed to Israel as a full-grown man. Now, when you consider that this is the, this is the story, the, the earthly life, the revelation, the gospel story of the most important person that ever lived, that silent gap in his life is an amazingly large chunk of time. This is decades that fit into that little space between the period at the end of chapter 2 and that first word at the beginning of chapter 3. And those who love Jesus, our minds are left to wonder with what these years must have been like for the Son of God as He progressed through all the stages of humanity. And that's the point of this gap in the Gospels is to remind us that He's a real man. He's a real man, Jesus. He is the man, Christ Jesus. He developed in the ways that we develop. He lived in all the ways that we live minus sin. He was the man, Christ Jesus. And that whole time, He's accruing a perfect record of obedience to God the Father. That perfect obedience that he's going to give as a gift to his people. He's accruing it. And all these silent years and that gap between childhood and adulthood. Jesus as a young man. Man, we, we could spend hours thinking about Jesus as a young teenager. Developing an encounter and all the temptations that young teenagers face. Jesus as a young man. Jesus in his 20s. Jesus as he turns 30. Of what it would have been like growing up as the, uh, w- w- with his stepfather as the carpenter from Nazareth. And yet what we know is that in every stage that he enters into, he's tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He is the man, 
Christ Jesus. And I think there's a lesson for us as followers of Christ in these silent years of Jesus' life. You think about what we hear so often from the world that we live in, especially the social media generation, is get your name out there, get your voice out there, build your platform. You only get one life and it's, and it's going by fast. Let people hear your voice. Let your voice be heard. And I think we could stand to be reminded that the greatest ministry that ever was lasted just a few years, the ministry of the Son of God. And it was preceded by decades of humble, obscure obedience to the Father that almost nobody knew about. And this is how the Son of God was prepared for His ministry. And we see that same lesson play out in John the Baptist's life. Years of humble, simple, obscure obedience to God before the revelation to Israel, before the public ministry. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to use those examples to commend to you humility this morning. That we would be those who embrace humility, embrace even obscurity, and completely satisfied with no one knowing our name as long as we get to serve and obey our God. When God gave us this story, these four Gospels, these four portraits of the earthly life of the Son of God, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each time the ministry of Jesus was preceded by the ministry of of John the Baptist. The story of the Son of God is married to the story of John the Baptist. And so these truths that we're going to study this morning about John the Baptist are gospel truths that we need to learn well. And that's what we're going to give our attention to this morning. Who is this baptizer and what is his message? Who is this baptizer and what is his message? I want us to think that when the time came, when the fullness of time came, that the king would be revealed to Israel, there was a problem. The way needed to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. The people were not prepared to meet him. There needed to be a herald. There needed to be a forerunner to announce the arrival of the Son of God. And God chose John the Baptist for this role. He was the herald of the King of Kings. He was the cousin of Jesus. And we find this out in, in Luke chapter 1. He was the cousin of Jesus Christ. He was the son of Zechariah, a priest in Israel. You remember the story where the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah as he's serving Yahweh in his temple. And he tells him that he's going to have a son. And there's prophecies made about John the Baptist. And I want us to get a sense, before we dive into this text, of just how great Scripture would have us to think about John the Baptist. And so I want to remind us of a few of these texts this morning. There was never a better judge of character than Jesus Christ. Can we all agree there? 
He never made a mistake. He, he, was, he, he saw things as they truly were. He was never seduced by just the outward form, the external form of a man. He was the greatest judge of character that ever was. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells us that there was never a man born of woman greater than John the Baptist. I want you to think about how weighty of a commendation that is from Jesus Christ. That there was never a man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Prior to his birth, the angel Gabriel comes to his father, Zechariah, in the temple. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, Gabriel says this about John before his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. I want you to think about parents in the room that love Jesus. Can't imagine hearing anything more encouraging to your heart than you're going to have a son, Zechariah. I know you want a son. You've tried to have a son for a long time, you and Elizabeth. You're going to have a son. He's going to be great before the Lord. And then the angel goes on to say these words. These are amazing words about a man. He says, Luke 1.15, He would be full of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a son? Going to be great before the Lord? And he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. Listen, even from his mother's womb. It's an amazing statement about a man. That he was filled with, Controlled by, under the influence of the Holy Spirit before he was even born. He was a unique man. He was a great man. This is who God called to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. If you take this spot in your Bible, Matthew 3, and just take just a couple of pages back to your left, right between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew... Most of us are going to have a page in our Bible that looks something like that. It's a blank page with no words on it. As we transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I, I would like that blank page to be a reminder to us of the silent years that preceded the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. History tells us that that blank page represents about 400 years of silence from God to Israel through his prophets. That the God who spoke many times and in many ways to his people Israel through the prophets was silent. He went silent. The voice went dark. There was nothing that was said for four centuries. And when God decided to break that silence, he determined that that silence would be broken by the second greatest man that ever lived, John the Baptist. Luke's gospel tells us that it was in this wilderness of Judea that the word of God came to John. That's the language of Old Testament prophets. This is not like God encouraging us in our quiet time as we open our Bibles. This is something completely different. This is prophetic revelation came to him in the wilderness. Fresh words from God for the people of God. The word of God came to John the prophet. In the wilderness. His ministry, his prophetic ministry, was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet. And Matthew tells us this. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, he tells us, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. 
And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And Matthew's point is, John is the voice. John is the voice that Matthew prophesied. John is the voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now just as a side note, I want to mention this. If you read Isaiah 40 verse 3, that voice that's crying out in the wilderness in Isaiah 40 verse 3 is preparing the way for Yahweh. That voice is preparing the way for God. God's about to be revealed. And I don't want you to miss this. When that text is applied to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 and all the Gospels, that voice is preparing the way for Jesus. That voice is preparing the way for Jesus. And this is one of many places in the New Testament where an allusion is made to the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss it. The Yahweh that was coming from the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament, the man from Nazareth. He's not just a man. He's God in the flesh. The coming of Jesus is the coming of Yahweh. And John was the voice calling attention to the revelation of Christ to Israel. And so when the time was determined that Jesus would be revealed, I want you to understand, God sent a spirit-filled man with a mouthful of fire for the Lord. This is John the Baptist. He was the chosen instrument, the vessel the herald of the king. In John 5, Jesus calls John a burning and a shining light. This man burned with zeal for the glory of God. He was a shining light. And Jesus says to Israel, you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. John was the burning and shining light that pointed to the greater light, Jesus. And so as we dive into this text, who is this baptizer? He's a prophet called of God. He's a prophet like no other that, that prophesied before him. And I don't want you to miss this. In many ways, in many ways, John is a strange man. Very strange man. In verse 4, uh, maybe some of the children that were paying attention, maybe you noticed this as we read this text. I want you to pay attention again. Make sure you don't miss this. This is a strange man walking on planet earth. Verse 4, he wore a garment of camel's hair. He wore dead animals. That was his clothing. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And listen, his food was locust and wild honey. The man wore dead animals to cover himself. And he ate bugs for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. And everybody in the room is thinking like, man, that's a strange man. And we know he's a holy man. He's like no one we've ever met in this world. He eats scrambled locusts for dinner, locust burgers for lunch, and locust chili for dinner. He's a strange man walking on planet Earth. And so there's some strangeness to this chosen vessel. And we see it in his diet and his dress, what he eats and what he wears. They point to the fact that John lived in isolation. 
He didn't live in the city. Access to the marketplace and the grocery stores. He lived in isolation in the wilderness. He lived alone with God. He was a man who lived alone with God. Until he was revealed to Israel. His food and his clothing came from the wilderness. That's the picture here. He lived off the land. He ate what he could find. He wore what he found in the wilderness. There's a simplicity to it. He lived off the land, isolated from the people. His simplicity shows us his willingness to deny himself earthly comforts so that he could serve the Lord, his God. He denied many earthly comforts. You can see this in his diet and in his dress. He was a servant of the Lord in every way. And not only does his simplicity show us his self-denial, his willing to deny himself, his simplicity is, is symbolic. John is identifying himself with the prophets of old. This is how Elijah the prophet is described in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Elijah, it was, it was said about Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. It's almost the exact same wording that's being picked up about Elijah the prophet and it's being described about John the Baptist. And in fact, this is one of many connections in the scriptures between Elijah the prophet of old and John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. You remember this, our Old Testament's close in Malachi with a prophecy that Elijah is coming. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And John is taking up this mantle. He's going to minister in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He is the Elijah to come. And so this strangeness of John the Baptist is identifying John with the prophets of old. He was the prophetic voice and his life is a sermon in and of itself. You say, what do you mean? Well, notice that John lived a relatively short life, just like Jesus. Cut off most likely in his early 30s. He didn't live to 40. He didn't see 60. He definitely didn't see 80. He lived a relatively short life and he lived a simple life as a wilderness nomad prophet, foregoing many worldly comforts. He lived a little bit of time in this world, and he did not feast at the table of this world. His life is a sermon. He lived a short life, but he lived a full life that glorified God. He was strange to us, but he was not strange in light of eternity. His life makes perfect sense in light of eternity. And considering his life, I want us to remember that according to the teaching of Jesus, that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. That's what Jesus taught and John believed it. His life did not consist in the abundance of things he owned or the things he was a part of in this world. He was a servant of God, living off the land, totally dedicated to the service of of the Lord. 
And his life also reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we need to be much, much, much more concerned about being useful to God in this world than we are concerned about growing old in this world. That the things that we hunger for and desire in our life ought to be much more. I want to serve God. I want to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Even if I only get 32 years in this world. That's the things that consume this man's heart. Not a long life, but a full one. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 3 tells us that large crowds began to flock to this man in Israel. Verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. Very popular ministry in Israel. And so make sure you have it set up this false dichotomy that if you're faithful to God, it's always going to mean that you have five people that listen to you. Make sure you don't set up a false dichotomy that small ministries automatically mean faithful ministries and large ministries automatically mean unfaithful ministries. Wasn't the case with John. He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that large crowds began to flock to John as he preached God's word in the wilderness. Now, if you step back for a moment, that's surprising. That thousands would come to hear this man with a dead camel skin on his body who ate locusts and who preached in the wilderness. That thousands would come to hear this man. It's surprising to us, surprising to me, because there's nothing in John's life that could ever be described as seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly. I want you to think about that. Nothing, nothing about his life can be described as as seeker-sensitive. Let's start with his location for ministry. I want you to think about how much this flies in the face of what we hear so often in modern church planning, modern missions work. His location. Not Jerusalem. Not the center of the town square. He decided under the call of God to begin to preach in the wilderness. Out in the middle of nowhere. And I want you to think about what this means about what God was doing in this nation, that thousands would take days to walk out into the wilderness. How long did you drive here this morning? They would take days to walk just to hear this man preach the Word of God. There was nothing seeker-sensitive about the location of John's ministry. Nothing comfortable about traveling to the wilderness or sitting in the wilderness, listening to the preaching of the word. His location was not seeker sensitive. His message was for sure not seeker sensitive. We hear him say in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so people come out to hear this man. Some people take days to walk there to hear him. And once they finally get there, he turns to him, he says, repent. And that presupposes that he's calling these crowds guilty 
unprepared to meet God. He's talking about their sin and he's calling them to turn. Nothing seeker sensitive about John's message. You didn't go out into the wilderness to hear this man with a mouthful of fire preach to feel good about yourself. You didn't. Wasn't a seeker sensitive message. And not only his location and not only his message, but also John's personality was not seeker sensitive. He's not the happy, clappy guy in the front of the crowd that never says anything disturbing. He ate locust burgers. He was wearing camel's hair when he preached the word of God. He was a bold man. He was not a man pleaser. He was a servant of God. And when he spoke, there was a sternness, an offensiveness to some of his language. Nothing seeker sensitive about the man. I want you to notice in verse 7 when he addressed the Pharisees and Sadducees, John the Baptist did not say, pardon me, gentlemen. John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers. This man full of the Holy Spirit indicted the unrepentant. He said, you're a bunch of snakes. And he spoke with boldness. And even language that would hit us as abrasive and even offensive. Nothing seeker sensitive about John. And yet, thousands come to hear the word of God from his lips. Out into the wilderness as he thundered warnings of judgment that were coming upon Israel. And I want you to think about two things. One, man, what an assault his life and ministry is on programmatic pragmatism that dominates so much of modern church. And by that I mean... The, the pivot to, man, we want people to come. What should we do to get people to come? Let's do this to get people to come. No, let's do this to get people to come. Let's make it really comfortable for this niche to be here or for this niche to come. Programmatic pragmatism. His ministry is an assault on it. It's an assault. And it's a great encouragement to any man who's ever given himself to preach God's word to God's people. John's ministry is a great encouragement because what does he have? He has the Spirit of God and he speaks the Word of God and he needs nothing else. The Word and the Spirit build the church and he needs nothing else. And if you look throughout church history, what sparked revivals and renewals and explosions in the growth of the church of Jesus throughout church history has not been the pragmatism of men. It's been the Word and the Spirit. Men of God giving themselves to preach the Word of God full of the Spirit of God. And we never want to get away from that as a local church. This church, Lord willing, will be blessed and grow by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And that's what we want to trust in. We don't want to trust in anything else but full of the Holy Spirit preaching God's word. And even if we were to set up shop in a desert, which I'm not supposing that we do. I'm not proposing that we do that. But this text tells us that God will bring his people to hear his word. God will bring his people to hear his word. 
John the Baptist's message was twofold. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preaching repentance flows right out of the prophetic tradition. He's, he, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Just like they preach repentance, when they announce to Israel, turn, return to the Lord, turn from your sin. John the Baptist preached the same thing. He called the nation to repentance. Now, that word repentance, you need to understand it. It assumes that you're guilty. If you need to repent, it's assumed that there's something that you've done that you need to repent of. It, It assumes that you're a sinner. It assumes that you are guilty. It assumes that you are not ready to meet the Lord. And you must repent. You must repent. This call to repent is a call to radically reorient your life around Jesus Christ. It's basically synonymous with this. Be converted for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a call to turn away from your sin and to turn towards Jesus Christ. The Greek word metanoia has connotations of a change of mind and a change of heart. But this was preceded by a Hebrew word shub that means turn. Turn from your sin. Make sure you understand that. That the Old Testament concept of repentance and the New Testament concept of repentance are the exact same thing. They're not different. The calls are not different. Just like the Old Testament concept of faith and the New Testament concept of faith, they're not different. He's calling the people to respond in the same way that the prophets of old called the people to respond. And John says in verse 8, and this is one of the things that we can learn well about repentance, is he tells us that if our repentance is genuine, if we truly repent, if we really repent, verse 8 shows us it's going to bear fruit. Always, if repentance is the root, then it's going to bear fruit. In verse 8, he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I mentioned not only the Old Testament prophets preached repentance, and then John the Baptist preached repentance, but I want to make sure we don't have any bad ideas that once the Baptist stops preaching repentance, then everything else after that in the New Testament is grace and say this prayer after me. I want to make sure that nobody thinks this way. okay? And I want to show you Through all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, this is the call to respond to the grace of God. You must repent. And so Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the Son of God Himself, when He began to preach the gospel, guess what? He preached the exact same message as John the Baptist. In fact, in the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 4 Verse 17, Jesus begins to preach and we find these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sound familiar? What John preached is what Jesus preached. And not only Jesus, as though we need to go any further than that, but His apostles also preached repentance when they preached the gospel. 
The apostle Peter preached repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We must repent. The apostle Paul preached repentance. Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. We must repent. We must turn away from our sin. And we must turn to Christ. And John made this call to repentance so urgent because he tied it to the arrival of the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is what John said. John is announcing with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing that God's reign, God's rule has broken into human history in a new way. That God has begun to reign in a new way. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. Now I want to explain that for a minute. Because there's a sense in Scripture when the kingship of God is discussed, it's talked about in two separate ways. You can basically put all the verses about God's kingdom, God's kingship, in these two categories. One category is that God is always king. He never stops being king. And that ought to be one of the things that you ask. What do you mean the kingdom of God is here? It's always been here. The Most High reigns over the kingdoms of men. He's in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And He turns it wherever He wishes. And those things are are true about God. And if we were to assign a theological category... To these verses, we would call it the sovereign reign of God. And in this sense, the kingdom never comes or leaves. It just is. God is king. He rules over all things. But there's another category of verses in Scripture that say things like God became king in Israel. Or the Lord will be enthroned in that day. And so there's another sense here. And if you were to assign a theological category to these verses, you would call it the mediatorial reign of Christ. So what do you mean by that? In the very first chapter of the Bible, we find out that it is God's plan to rule through His representative. Adam was given the dominion mandate in the Garden of Eden. He was told to rule over the whole created world for the Lord his God. And we know that Adam failed that mandate. But God's plan to rule through his representative remains. We see this reestablished, especially in the promises that God made to King David and to David's heir, that the throne of David would be the throne of God. And in in this sense, the kingdom comes. And this is the announcement of John the Baptist that God's representative, the one whom God has determined to rule through, God's king, he's here. The kingdom is at hand. The long-awaited king is finally here. Prepare the way for him. Get ready and repent. This is the call. The one who was born king in Matthew chapter 2, is about to be revealed as king to Israel 
in Matthew chapter 3. This call was urgent. And he sealed this call with a baptism. So John was a preacher and a baptizer. And as a preacher, he stood in that long history of prophetic tradition. But as a baptizer, he stood alone. This is not something that was prescribed by the Old Covenant. This is new revelation from God. This is something new that God has given to His prophet. John calls him to a baptism in water. And this baptism is an expression of both them confessing sin. Notice that in verse 6. And the language here is almost like at the same time they were being baptized, they were confessing their sins in the river Jordan. It's it's identifying with your guilt before God. Confessing your sin as you take John's baptism. And not only a confession of guilt, John's water baptism is also identified with repentance of sin. And you see that in verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so this water baptism, as you take it appropriately, you confess your sins and it's a sign, a symbol, an expression of your repenting, your turning away from your sins. And this baptism was meant to prepare Israel to meet the Lord. Remember, that was John's role, the voice crying out, prepared the way for the Lord. I'll mention this quickly. Because because John's baptism was not commanded in Scripture, scholars have speculated about the background of this baptism. Where did this come from? And there are two main options that are talked about. One is the, the daily washings of the Qumran community in the days of John the Baptist, referred to as the Essenes, this, Jew, this isolated Jewish sect that um, added these ceremonial ritual daily washings. Some say John has taken over this practice. Some even identify with John the Baptist as an Essene. Other scholars point to the Jewish practice of proselyte baptism. And this is not something that was prescribed in the Old Testament, but it grew out of Jewish tradition that when Gentiles converted to Judaism, not only did they take the covenant sign of circumcision, but there was an added practice over, uh, over time of proselyte baptism. That after circumcision, they went through a one-time ceremonial baptism because they were thought of as so unclean that rendered them in a state of purity to worship the Lord. And, 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 And in the case of women that converted from paganism to Judaism. Of course, they weren't circumcised. The sign was only applied to males. They would only receive the proselyte baptism. And some point to this as the background of what John the Baptist is calling Israel into. Now, we don't know exactly uh, what layers of those overlap, but what we do know is John's baptism is an indictment to Israel. If they were ready to meet the Lord, they don't need the baptism of repentance. 
And so whatever the baptism is, it's an indictment that you are the people of God, but you're not ready to meet your God. And if the background is proselyte baptism, then it's even sharper. He's, he's telling the nation, you're no more ready to meet the Lord than a pagan Gentile. And you get some of this language in verse, 10, verse 9 when these Jews are presuming upon their ancestry and upon their circumcision. John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's indicting them. He's indicting the whole nation. They're the people that are called by the name of God, but they are not ready to meet their God. They must repent. They must repent. They must bear fruit. In verse 10, he says, The axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every fruitless tree is going to be cut down and burned in the fire. They must repent. They must be ready and prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. Now I want you to think about how sharp of a contrast John's message is, John's gospel preaching is, to so much in the modern church. He called people to repentance and he warned them of a coming judgment. And I want to remind us that if we uh, don't do likewise, Jesus preached pre preach repentance, the apostles preached repentance, and if we decide, you know what, that stuff is too offensive, let's just stick with the, 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 good, th the good news of the gospel, the things that encourage us of the gospel, and let's sift all these bad things out. I want to remind you that if you take repentance... And judgment out of the gospel, it is no longer the biblical gospel. We do not have the right or the authority to modify the message. We have one message. It's for all nations. And our job, our charge is to distribute that message to the nations untainted. We're stewards of the gospel. When John appeared to Israel... He was the biggest deal in this nation in 400 years. I want you to think about it. What if that happened right now? That all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone pops on the scene, and they're more popular than anyone has been in America in 400 years. We haven't even been a country, you know, for 400 years. I mean, just think about that. Just immense response to John's ministry, the most popular figure in this nation for 400 years. Imagine the excitement around this man. And I want you to think for a moment. Someone this powerful, this gifted, this popular, this well-known. I want you to think about how highly he must have thought about himself. Greatest man. Jesus called him the greatest man that was born of a woman. How highly John must have thought about himself. Or we might be tempted to think this, man, how much he must have struggled with pride, with all that popularity, with everybody knowing his name. And then I want you to look at verse 11, and we find out exactly what this man thought about himself. The greatest man born of a woman beside Jesus, besides Jesus, verse 11, saw himself as unworthy 
to carry the sandals of Jesus Christ. Unworthy to carry Jesus' sweaty, nasty, dirty sandals. The most popular man in the nation saw himself as unworthy to perform slave work for the Son of God. And so we see this glimpse into this holy man's heart that he deflects all the praise, all the attention, all the greatness to another, away from himself and to another. And is it not an amazing thing when we remember he said that about his cousin in his own family? Now, I know some of you love your cousins, and some of you might have cousins that are very godly, serve the Lord. He said it about his own cousin, and he meant it. It wasn't hyperbole. He really meant it. That with all of his popularity, with all of his success, he's not even worthy to grab and carry the shoes of Jesus. This is John's humility. His whole ministry is a deflection away from himself and a pointing to another. John the Baptist shows us our role as disciples of Jesus. It's to point away from ourselves and to our Savior. His life should provoke us to humility in every way. You say, why? None of us have drank the cup that John drank. He drank the cup of popularity like nobody in this room has ever drank. He drank the cup of the praise of man like nobody in this room has ever drank. If he had a podcast, it would be number one. If he wrote a book, it would be a bestseller. If he had a church downtown, there would be 35 services to hear him preach. And yet we see this pivot to humility. And the argument is from greater to lesser. If this is the way John saw himself, how much more we, how much more should we deflect and give all praise, all honor, and all glory to Jesus Christ? John was the pointer, but Jesus was the point. And we should never forget that lesson. You will never be the point. Because you will never be the Christ. You will never be the point because you will never be the Christ. John is the messenger. Jesus is the message. John is the voice crying out in the wilderness. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He is the Christ. Verse 11, John appeals to the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he does it in two ways. He refers to Jesus' person and Jesus' work. He says in verse 11, he's mightier than I am. John's gospel says, he came before me. That's interesting because the gospels tell us John was born first, before Jesus. But he's greater than John. He's mightier than John. He came before John. And John gladly confesses that Jesus is the mighty one. And not only that, his baptism is better than John's Baptism. John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now the Old Testament prophesied this. That there was this coming age where the people of God would be given the Holy Spirit in a new measure and in a new way. Joel prophesied it. Ezekiel prophesied it. Isaiah prophesied the age of the Spirit. Joel said, I will pour out, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And John clarifies that these promises are going to find their fulfillment in the spirit baptism of Jesus Christ, the one who will baptize by the spirit and by fire. And so the Messiah, the Christ, is going to give the Holy Spirit to his people by baptizing them in the Holy Spirit. This is how we receive the spirit is through the baptism of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And that's a reminder that this baptism is a gift that Jesus gives to everyone who is saved. To everyone in the, in the church. To everyone who believes. To every member of the kingdom of God. He gives them the Holy Spirit by giving them the baptism of the Spirit. Not only will Jesus baptize with the Spirit, He will also baptize with fire. And this, I believe, is a conversion metaphor. The Spirit and fire. Now, I want to clarify this. I've gone back and forth on some different ways to read that phrase, but I, I believe I've landed here. This is referring to one baptism, not two. Not a baptism of salvation spirit and then a baptism of judgment fire. Even though that view, it fits really nice with, with the next verse. But the problem is this. There's one baptism singular that Jesus is said to give here. And he's said to give it with spirit and fire. There's one preposition that governs the spirit and fire. It's not with the spirit and with fire. It's with spirit and fire. And I believe this baptism of fire to be a reference to refinement and purging and holiness that Jesus Christ gives to his people. Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah 4 verse 4 prophesies that the Lord would wash away the filth of Zion. Listen, by a spirit of burning. Malachi says this. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 prophesies that the Lord would be a refiner's fire. And that he would purify the sons of Levi. And then the very first time this baptism is given in Acts chapter 2. This baptism is said to come. The spirit baptism is said to come with tongues of fire that rested upon the disciples of Jesus. So I take this to be a metaphor of conversion. That the baptism that Jesus gives, it gives his people the Holy Spirit and it makes them pure. We receive the Spirit and we receive holiness as we receive the Spirit. And for this reason, His baptism is greater than John's. John's baptism is an external sign that touches the skin. But Jesus' baptism is internal reality that changes your life. You can be baptized by John and remain unchanged. You cannot be baptized by Jesus Christ by spirit and fire and remain the same. He makes us new. New creatures. He regenerates us. Gives us His Holy Spirit. And He's been doing this. Baptizing believers in the Holy Spirit and fire for over 2,000 years. In fact, there are many, many in this room. That have received this very gift from Jesus Christ. He has baptized you in the spirit and in fire. He made you new. He gave you the Holy Spirit. Made you pure. He is the one who is mightier than John. He's brought millions from death 
to life. He is the Savior. The one who can baptize with the Spirit is the Savior. He's the only one that can save you. There is no one else that can do the work that Jesus can do. And listen, you need this baptism. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. Not only a guilty record, also a fallen, corrupt nature. You need to be made new. And the only one who can make you new is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Verse 12 reminds us that not only is Jesus the Savior who baptizes, He is also the judge who punishes. Verse 12 His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verse 12 reminds us that it is the man Christ Jesus who will preside over the final judgment. It is Jesus Christ who will be the great divider of humanity between two different groups. It is Jesus that every human being has to deal with. He will be the great divider of humanity. And He will separate the wheat from the chaff. Now I want you to understand the metaphor. The metaphor is agricultural. That that the winnowing fork is said to be in His hand. And this is something like a pitchfork, if you've ever seen that. And, and the idea here is this farmer with a stack of grain that's mixed with chaff. The chaff is the worthless part that needs to be separated from the grain. The winnowing fork goes in the pile and flicks up the grain. The grain is heavier than the chaff. The wind, the blowing wind, is meant to blow away the chaff. And as that's done over and over and over again, you purify the grain. You have grain that is ready to use. Jesus is said to be the one with the winnowing fork in His hand. He will sift out the chaff from the wheat. And He will gather the wheat into His barn. And that's a reference to all who belong to Him. All who believe the Gospel will be gathered into the barn of Jesus Christ. None will be left. None will be left behind. They will be given eternal life. They will be with Christ forever. They will be gathered into the barn. But listen, the chaff, those who do not repent, those who do not believe the Gospel, those who do not serve Jesus as King, those who do not cling to Christ, as Savior. They will be removed from the grain. And this text says that they will be burned with unquenchable fire. That it is Jesus who is ready to save and it is Jesus who is ready to judge all of humanity. The winnowing fork is in His hand. This is a message as serious as life and death. And I exhort you today to prepare for the coming of the Lord. John's message is just as needed, just as relevant right now in this moment as it ever was when he preached it in the wilderness. You must prepare for the coming of the Lord. When he comes the second time, the chaff are going to be separated from the grain. The unbelievers are going to be burned with unquenchable fire.
Prepare for the coming of the Lord. Don't trust in your parents. In the same way that the Pharisees and Sadducees were tempted to trust in their ancestry. We have Abraham as our father. Surely we won't be lost forever. Don't trust in your parents. Don't trust in how godly mom and daddy are. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in the church and your connectedness to the church. Those things cannot save you. Don't trust in them. They cannot save you. They're deceivers. Only Christ can save you. You must repent and you must believe the gospel. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. And if you are a Christian, and there are many here in the room, I want to exhort you to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Keep repenting. Keep believing the gospel. There's a phrase in 2 Timothy 2.19. It says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Brothers and sisters, do that. Depart from iniquity. Prepare for the coming of Jesus. Everything that grieves your God, everything that's offensive to your God, turn away from sin. Keep repenting. Keep clinging to Jesus Christ. And as you repent, don't trust in your repentance. And as you believe the gospel, don't trust in your faith and the strength of your faith and how strong am I repenting, how much am I believing. Repent and believe, but don't trust in your repentance and faith. It is Christ alone who saves us. It is Christ alone who saves. And only He can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for the opportunity today that You have given us to hear Your Word, to study Your Word. And Lord, many words have been spoken about this text. And Lord, I ask that if anything is unhelpful and not from You, Lord, that You would cancel it, God. That You would override it, Lord. That You would cancel it and set it to the side in the life of Your people. But Lord, we want to call out to You today. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would cause your word to bear fruit in this church. Lord, we pray for the lost today, those who do not know Jesus. Lord, we pray in that quiet moment that's coming, maybe later today, maybe sometime this week, that you would drive these truths in their souls, Lord. That you would disturb them about the coming judgment. That you would disturb them, Lord, about the guilt of their sin. And that you, by your kindness, Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, lead them to trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below.
the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And we all say, Amen.